0: On September 22nd, 1994, a new sitcom aired that was about six young adults living in New York. And these relatively unknown actors and actresses became overnight stars portraying the ins and outs of the life and friendships of these six characters that I'm going to name, Chandler, Monica, Rachel, Phoebe, Ross, and Joey. In this share, a show that aired a decade, for a decade, as some of you know, it's, it's a show called Friends. Now, I realize, and just pump the brakes here, I know that this wasn't a Christian show by any means, but it depicted friendships, didn't it, and all the ups and downs of life, and I don't bring up the show to commend it at all, but to make the connection to our sermon theme of Christian friendships. And following up on last week's sermon, after somewhat unexpectedly kind of stumbling along into a sermon on friendships in our Galatians series, I thought it would be good for us to further expand on that theme because friendships are oh so vital in the Christian life. We're going to answer this morning the who, what, and why of Christian friendships, as you see on the screen. Who is a Christian? Then what are Christian friendships? And then finally, why do these friendships matter? All this because First Baptist Church and Christians, you see, we should be prioritizing and cultivating Christian friendships. It's so important to our church, but even in our own lives. It's vital. And I say this not just as your pastor, or as a pastor, but someone who knows firsthand that these significant friendships are so important in my life, and in my family's life as well. Would you believe it, church, if I told you that Stacy and I were at one moment almost about ready to move on and not become members and not be involved in the church that I was at prior to coming here to Gallatin, to that church in California, the church I was ordained at. Would would, would you believe that? We almost decided last minute to start checking out other churches due to not yet making any connections at Marietta Valley Church in a church similar to First Baptist Church in terms of size. After a few months of meeting, we were not just where we were, just, just to be honest. Now, it was a great church with wonderful preaching and God-glorifying music, but we just hadn't yet made those deep connections, and we were feeling like we might check out other gospel preaching, Bible preaching, good local churches, because those connections are so important. Remember, this is the church I would be called to be one of the pastors at and be ordained at. And Stacy and I almost left beforehand. I talk about this with firsthand experience about how important friendships are. One night, I think back, and there was an evening potluck, kind of a meal at, MVC. I remember that it was a chili cook-off with baked potatoes. It's it funny how we remember food like that years and years ago. And Stacy and I were literally about ready to make other plans that night because we were thinking about visiting another church. So we weren't even going to go that night. But then we decided to go, and we're sure glad that we did. And we believed that it was providential that we did because it was at that fellowship meal that evening that we ended up meeting and getting connected with some of our best friends back in California who we had not yet met up to that point. They're coming to visit us this summer. I say all this to tell you how much significant, deep Christian friendships mean. How they mean to me and my family. Not, and they... They mean so much to us personally here at this church. You know this. But also to how we connect to other people in a church, in this church. I know that so many of you have deep friendships that are irreplaceable and so valuable here at this local church. Praise God for that. That's how God intended it to be. He did not intend for us to be alone but to be in relationships with people. And local church is a place that we can get into these and cultivate these significant Christian relationships or friendships. They're where they're developed for believers. So first things first this morning, as we consider this topic of Christian friendships, we have to start with defining our terms. What is? A Christian, since you can't have Christian friendships without the whole being a Christian thing. That makes sense, right? The show I mentioned at the start, it depicts friendships of people who cared for each other. And being good friends and caring for each other is a good thing, no matter who you are. But you see, Christian friendships, the whole being a Christian thing, a believer, is essential to that whole topic, right? So, this leads us to our first question that we're going to consider. And question number one Who are these Christians, anyways? A Christian is someone who has been transformed through the reading of the gospel or hearing of the gospel, and that they've believed it, and they believe the implications for their own lives. It's true for them. A Christian summons who's been converted in that way. Now, there are many places in Scripture that we could go to talk about these things, but Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 is a good place here for us to start, and it says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Saved. Now, let me be clear here to every single one of you who are a professing believer with us. If you're a Christian, then that means you've had this conversion experience. You've been converted, you've been transformed, you're a believer. You believe the gospel and you were born. Again, you were were generated. You were fully transformed. You had eyes to see and ears to hear so that you could understand the goodness of the gospel, not just for other people out there, but for you personally, and you believed it. And you were changed. You once were lost, but now you were found. You once were blind, but now you were able to see. And you've been justified by God's grace through faith that we've been seeing in our Galatians series, right? Your sins were fully washed away by Jesus' blood. You were saved the moment you first believed. But then guess what happens after that? It doesn't just end there. There's something else. After a person is converted in that way, They continue on in the process of the Christian life that the theologians call sanctification. Have you heard that word? It's that process whereby we become more and more like Jesus our whole lives. Think about when you were converted, you didn't all of a sudden become mature, right? There's a, a process. Never attaining perfection in this life This side of heaven, never being perfect, but growing as Christians, little by little, leaps and bounds and ups and downs, all the way until our very deaths. And let me warn you, church, if you meet someone, or if you are someone, who has no growth in your Christian life, no spiritual life that's evident, not even one step forward and four steps back, or like two steps forward and ten steps back, not not even like a little bit of teeny, teeny, light, small growth, if there's nothing there, then you have to wonder and be concerned about whether or not that that person, or even you yourself, are even a Christian. Because all Christians are, are saved in that way, converted, and then they begin to be sanctified in their life. Every last one of us. You can't just skip that, punt on that. It's not, oh, it just relates to other people, it doesn't relate to me. No, it relates to every last Christian. You call yourself a Christian, this will be true of you. So I want you to realize that not everyone who says that they're a Christian is actually a believer if they are not growing and living the Christian life today. Christianity is not just about what happened in the past. What's going on now? What's going on today? What's going in your heart and life and mind? What's what's going on now? So in this frame of thinking, I also want to say something about what Christianity is not. Because there's a lot of confusion in this day and age about what a Christian is. A lot of people call themselves Christians and think of themselves as Christians, but they've got no reason to be thinking that. A Christian is not someone who just says a prayer and walks an aisle and then fails after that to show any signs of subsequent transformation after that supposed moment of belief. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians will say prayers and Christians will walk aisles or believe the gospel in their seats or believe the gospel when they're talking to someone on the street and they're converted or believe the gospel when they're reading the scripture. Christians will have uh, those types of things initially. That's not the problem. I mean, every Christian's going to have one of those conversion experiences that could tie to all of those things. So don't get me wrong there. However, There's going to be, you could take it to the bank, there's going to be every single time transformation afterwards if that supposed conversion was true. Christians are going to then believe and be baptized and get involved in a local church and continue in the faith. And if they're not, it's likely that they're not Christians. There's a lot of professing Christians walking around in our world today saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I said the prayer back in 1982. Or I walked an aisle at the crusade back in in whatever date. And yet, they've not darkened the door of a church ever since. And there have been no subsequent uh, signs of actual life change and conversion. (laughs) The Bible tells us that has to be there, right? We know that. And they're not living or thinking Christianly according to the Bible. They don't even really care about what the Bible says. They're not cracking it open. If that's the case, if you know someone like that, if you are someone like that, that is not Christianity. Not at all. Consider the sober words from... The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and 21 to 23. We looked at this some months back when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, the Mount says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, These are Jesus' words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are Jesus' words. Sobering words. Humbling words. Depart from me. May we never hear those words, church. May we be sure that we're genuine, church. These were people who were casting out demons and doing things in the name of Jesus. They were doing religious things and yet Jesus tells them that he never knew them. So we have to have a category in our minds of someone who has a profession of faith that isn't truly a Christian. It's just biblical. Because there are lots of people who have professed Christ at one time or another but are right now not living at all like a Christian at all. Just evidence that they're likely not Christians. And we have to think clearly about it, even at our church, especially at this church. We need to think clearly about these things. And to that end, I turn us to a book by Mike McKinley titled, Am I Really a Christian? This is a book put out by Nine Marks Ministry, a really good ministry. And I read it over a decade ago when I was in Kentucky for seminary. Not, I didn't read it for a seminary class, but I read it with a brother in my church who was struggling with whether or not he was truly a Christian. Based on to the serious and heinous sexual sin that he had fallen into, that he was getting entangled with, and he was doubting at that moment whether he was even a Christian. He didn't know. He was struggling. So me and this brother picked up this book, and we went through it chapter by chapter, and I thought it was really helpful. And just by the way, that Christian friend of mine is still a believer to this day. Praise God. The Lord kept him and encouraged him in the gospel and spurred him on in the faith. So this is what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to go through a few of these chapters here on this point here. And just the chapter headings. Just read the chapter headings. And Say a few words on them because I think they're really helpful and you can see them on the screen as well. Chapter 1, the title, is this. You are not a Christian just because you say that you are. Now to be clear, everyone who is a Christian will say that they are a Christian. So don't get me wrong. Believers will say that they're Christians and have a profession of faith. But the point here that he's getting at in that chapter is that not everyone who says that they're Christians are truly converted Christians. People do have false professions of faith. My own testimony fits this category as someone who had a profession of faith and even was baptized falsely at 10 years old, but it wasn't until I was 18 that I was converted and I believed the Bible. I had a false profession. People have false professions. So just because you say it doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Does that makes sense? Chapter number two. You were not a Christian if you haven't been born again. This is really what we just already discussed before, that anyone who is saved will have a new heart. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, as we see in John chapter 3, and Jesus tells him that you are not a Christian unless you're born again. Don't you get it? You're a religious teacher. You can't be a Christian unless you're born again. Spiritual transformation is a must, and if you don't have that, you're not a Christian, right? Chapter number 3 says this. You are not a Christian just because you like Jesus. Lots of people say that they like Jesus, and they pay lip service to Jesus. You see it all over on interviews on TV and all various types of people saying that they like Jesus. Uh, People getting the shirt. I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, but there's a shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. That was popular at one point. People make jokes about baby Jesus or say that they like Jesus, but just because someone says they like Jesus it doesn't make them a Christian. We need to think clearly about this. Is it in your category and in your thinking that just because someone thinks that Jesus is cool or great, does it make it automatically true that they're a believer themselves? Of course, those of us who are saved are going to like Jesus, right, and think he's great. But not everybody who says that is saved, right? You you get that point. I think we've we've covered that a little bit. Chapter 4 says this. You are not a Christian if you enjoy sin, He clarifies in this chapter, of course, that nobody sins unless there's an allure to it. There's an attraction to it. It's not that you might not fall into the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's not saying that if that happens for you that you're not a Christian. Because if that's the case, every last one of us wouldn't be a Christian every last one of us would be going straight to hell. It's not, it's not just if you're having a lure to sin. What he's getting at is that if you're wholly given over to sin by blatantly pursuing and with reckless abandonment, without any repentance, without any battle, without any fight against sin, then he's saying, then you're not a Christian. That's the point there in that chapter. Chapter five says this. You are not a Christian if you do not endure to the end. Sounds pretty basic, right? If someone says that they're a Christian at one point and then later goes off the deep end and has no sign of conversion of Christianity for the rest of their lives until their death, then that's an evidence, not that they're Christians because they had some profession of faith way back when, but it's more of an evidence that they are not Christians because Christians, you see, they continue in the faith. That is literally what a Christian does. Not on their own strength, but with the help of God. When God's doing a work, he keeps that work going. It's called eternal life for a reason. It doesn't just fall away after a few months or years. Chapter 6, you are not a Christian if you don't love other people. We saw this in our first John series. It's the first series I preached here in 2020 the evidences of genuine Christianity, the false evidence, someone who says that they love their brother and yet they don't show it and they don't do anything, they don't say it, they don't act like it, then John tells them that they're basically liars and that the truth is not in them and it's all lip service and they're just a bunch of fakes. If you don't have any love in your heart for other Christians or other people, you're not a Christian. Chapter seven, finally here, you are not a Christian if you love your stuff. If you are enslaved to the idolatry of your things and given over to worldly pursuits of your stuff, then the Bible warns you that you may not be a Christian. It's all over the scripture warnings about that if you fall into that category. So those are seven quick diagnostic chapters. Uh, He goes on and a few more chapters at the end of the book um, to further drive home this point that not everybody who says that they are a Christian are Christians. We must think clearly about this. So now that we just considered in our first point what a Christian is and isn't, this leads us now to our second question about Christian friendships. And question number two, what are Christian friendships? What are they? Let me start right off the bat here and say that Christian friendships are not simply people getting together who happen to go to the same church. It includes that. But we've got to say more about what Christian friendships are. Christian friendships are, positively speaking, intentional relationships centered on the shared experience of initial gospel transformation. So when somebody is converted or justified sinners, they've had their sins freed and washed away as they've believed. And then lives that are continuing to be transformed by, in, in their sanctification to be more like Jesus in the Christian life. So Christian friendships meets at the fact that we are Christians together. That's the whole idea. Our Christianity is what bases it what pulls us together as friends in this Christian friendship. We've been saved? They've been saved. Two saved friends or more get together and share a connection that brings them together into the family of God transformed by this great powerful wonderful God who saved them both. And though every last Christian friendship is between two or more believers, I want to be clear here that though all Christians that are Christians are genuine believers, not all Christians are going to be at the same level of maturity and Christ-likeness in their life. And that's okay. It's to be expected. This is why we need each other to be challenged, to grow. Since we are all progressively at different places, and we have all entered the game, so to speak, at different times. Not everybody was converted at the same day. Wouldn't that be crazy if you walked into a church and everyone was like, yeah, I got converted on June 31st, 1985? I mean, that doesn't happen that way. I mean, if that's everybody's conversion date, let's... See hands. Maybe it was one of yours I got lucky, but I doubt that all of us got saved on the same day. And some of us have been Christians for a lot longer than others, right? Add to this that each Christian, each of us, has been given by God different measures of gifts. So we shouldn't be looking around and thinking everybody should be exactly like us, right? Philippians 1.29 proves this. It says this to us. For it has been granted. Granted. Mark this verse down first. Or Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted or given as gift. Christians, your faith has been given to you by God. You can't boast about it. You can't pat yourself on the back. You can't look down on others. You don't have this boastful attitude because you know that it's because of the grace of God. It's by the grace of God I go. If it wasn't, oh, what a mess I'd be. I say it and I believe it. I hope you say it and you believe it. It's true of even every last one of us. Romans twelve three through four says this, and it helps to further clarify and establish this very point. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So, God has assigned different levels of faith that each believer has. And we will have different levels of gifts and faith in our church at FBC Gallatin. And there's no boasting in any of this because we know that it's God who's given us that level or measure of faith as the Bible clearly teaches. So get that pride and judgmentalism out of here. In your heart, if it's there, crucify it, put it to death. It's sinful. And if we are weaker in the faith, we should look to those who are stronger in the faith to help us grow. And if we are stronger in the faith... We don't look down to those who are weaker with pride and judgmentalism, but with love to help them grow. And P.S., if you think you're really mature in the faith, and you're looking down and prideful and judgmental on other people, then you're not really mature in the faith. But no matter what level that you're at, if you're a genuine Christian, each and every Christian, no matter where they're at, they're all saved. Praise God for Christian friends, no matter what level that they may be at at this point in their life. But as we've warned about so far in this sermon, there are people who say that they are Christians maybe coming to our church, maybe even at this very church right now, maybe even if they've been members for years. And for we all know many members of churches who have no evidence of true conversion and haven't been to church in years. Right? If we're just to be honest. But this shouldn't only discourage you. And I know that it does. It discourages me. It discourages any Christian when you see that kind of thing. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. It shouldn't only discourage you, but it should also excite and motivate you as well. Well, what do I mean by that? What can I possibly mean by that? What I mean is that There are people even in our church or connected to our church who need the gospel still and need to be converted by God. There's a mission field in this church or connected to this church. So we should always be ready to preach and teach and tell the gospel to people in our church. And as many good pastors have pointed this out before me, we ought never to assume or presume salvation on anybody. We could make that error, can't we? Well, they go to church. They have the Bible. They sing the songs. They're members. Don't presume that they are believers just because. Don't take it for granted. We need to continue to give the gospel, not only because some of us have false professions of faith and may not be converted, but also we should not take the granted for the gospel for granted ever, as we've seen in our table talks and the Gospel Primer book, and we need to be discussing and preaching the gospel to ourselves and other people every single day because genuine Christians, mature Christians, are continue to be motivated and lifted up with gospel realities and reminders as well. Why do you think, dear Christian, if you're mature in the faith and you've heard the gospel a million times, you get teared up sometimes when you hear a gospel song and you sing with your heart gospel realities that you once were lost and now you see Why? Because the gospel is powerful to move even mature Christians. So we can't neglect it. We must not neglect it, as some churches do. But tell people in our church the gospel. Don't presume it. Don't take it for granted. Give them the gospel. Give them Christ. Not because... We have to, but because we get to, to carry up on other themes that we've looked at. We want to do this because we want to see people saved. We want to see Christians built up. So don't presume everyone around us is saved. Be sensitive to keeping the gospel forefront since you know it's the forefront, it is literally a pillar and important. Primary thing in our church, we are a gospel-centered, word-centered, disciple-centered to build up disciples. That's the kind of church we are. This is what your pastors are going to lead you to. This is where we need to be because you just never know where people are at. And we all need the gospel. I read the first volume of Ian Murray's biography, wonderful biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned, Martin, as one of my favorite preachers. And he was a preacher of the 20th century. He started pastoring in 1927 and died in 1981. He was an expository preacher, preaching through books of the Bible. And he was just a plain biblical preacher. Whether he was preaching a series through the Bible or even preaching different topical series that were based solely on rock-solid biblical truth and convictions. That's why I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. Before he was a preacher, though, did you know that he was a medical doctor and pursued numerous degrees as a doctor? Even as a job. That's what he was. But then, all of a sudden, God called this doctor, who was not seminary trained, nor was he ever seminary trained, for that matter, to become a pastor And God gave him a unique giftedness in ministry and a call as a preacher that he left his affluent job as a doctor. And oh, I will never forget the words that Ian Murray shared in his biography, and I'm going to paraphrase it here. Everyone was saying to Lloyd-Jones that he was foolish for throwing away his career and all that money he could have earned and the ability to help sick people for the ministry. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I lost nothing but gained everything. And to not s- to slight anyone who works as a doctor or in the medical field, since that is a very noble calling and much needed, Lloyd-Jones would agree with that statement, but, but, but he said that he was realizing for himself that he, he saw that he was helping people who were dying and sick to get well so they can get right back out of the game of sin and unbelief and deadness that they were in prior to coming to him. And he saw his calling on his particular life as more important to be a preacher of the gospel and to pursue the ministry for him than even this prestigious career. And that was the call on Martin Lloyd-Jones' life. And what I'm going to share with you here in this biography is some of the conversions, a few of the conversion stories that Ian Murray compiles. This is the first volume that covers about the first 40 years of Martin Lloyd-Jones' life and then ministry. The first story that I'm going to share with you was in his first pastorate. There was a man who was a church administrator working for the church, a church worker, or a secretary, as what they called it back then, and his name was E.T. Reese. E.T. Reese clearly had a profession of faith as he hired Martin Lloyd-Jones to be a preacher, and he worked at a church, right? Professing Christian. And eight months later, after Martin Lloyd-Jones came to preach there, he came under conviction of the preaching of the word and realized he wasn't truly a Christian. And he was converted at once when he believed the gospel from Martin's preaching. This was a church employee working at the church who wasn't even saved, wasn't even a convert. It's amazing, he gets saved eight months in to Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching the gospel. The gospel does amazing things, unexpected amazing things. And if you think that story is miraculous of a church worker getting saved, and it is, consider this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his own wife, Bethan Lloyd-Jones, Her testimony is that she wasn't even a Christian until after sitting under the preaching of her husband for two years. She wasn't a believer, his own wife. Certainly, Martin considered his wife a believer. He wouldn't have married her otherwise if she wasn't a believer. But in reality, she wasn't a Christian. She had a false profession of faith. Let me read this little bit from the biography to show this to you and encourage you about this potential that's all around us. Now, these are Martin's own words recorded here, and this is about his first church. It says this It took some time. I was there from February to July without a single conversion. That's five months. The first conversion was in July and was not a striking one. So apparently, Lloyd-Jones had some doubts about whether that was genuine. Then he says, we went on holiday. So he goes on vacation with his wife. After we had come back, E.T. Reese was converted on the first Sunday in October. And that did seem to start something. And it went on from there. Eight months later, E.T. Reese gets saved. Ian Murray interjects now and kind of gives some words here to the story. He says, but Dr. Lloyd-Jones knew that there was more happening even in 1927 than was apparent. For his own wife had come into a state of concern and conviction. Having attended church and prayer meetings from childhood, Beth and Lloyd-Jones had always believed that she was a Christian. Not until she heard Martin preach for the first time on his second visit to Sandfields." In December 1926 was she confronted in a sermon on Zacchaeus with an insistence that all men are equally in need of salvation from sin. The message shook her, even frightened her, and she almost resented the teaching which appeared to place her in the same condition as those who had no religion at all. Like how dare him? <laughs> That's who she was. In a sense, she had always feared God. Her life was upright, and yet she knew that she had no personal consciousness of the forgiveness of sins. No sense of inward joy uh, and that joyful communion with Christ. Now, in, Martin, in Mrs. Lloyd-Jones' own words, now these are from her very pen. Bethan says this. This is her testimony. Hear it. I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remembered how I used to rejoice to see drunkards become Christians and envy them with all my heart because they... We're full of joy and free. And here I was in a different condition. I recall sitting in the study at 57 Victoria Road, and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin. And I shall always remember Martin saying, as he looked through his books, read this. He gave me John Angle James's The Anxious Inquirer Directed. I've never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all my sins away. There at last I found release and I was so happy. You never know if there's a Beth and Lloyd-Jones at our church or in our community, or in your family. Even if they have a profession of faith, you never know. So don't take it for granted. Preach the gospel to everyone. Share the gospel, bring it up. Share how it transforms your life. Share why you love it. Share the content of the gospel to everyone, even in your church family, even in your actual family. Don't assume that anyone's saved just because they say it, but realize that everybody needs to continue to hear and be encouraged by the gospel. Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised three days later according to the scriptures. Say it. Glory in it. Love it. Pray it. Put it before people all the time. They need it. This leads us to our final point. We answered the questions of who and what Christian friendships are made of. So now we move on to our final question and number three. Why do these Christian friendships matter? Or what should we actually even be doing with our Christian friends to begin with? I'm going to close here with nine really, really quick points about Christian friendship to and for one another. So let's drive through these realities so that we can be encouraged in the Christian life. Tip number one, Christians hang out. This doesn't seem very spiritual, does it? They hang out, even in casual settings. We go to Bulldog or other sporting events together. Or we watch games on the TV, maybe the Super Bowl, maybe the World Series, or maybe any other game in between. Or we go to each other's houses to spend time. Some of us go on vacations together. Or we go out to see a movie, or we go over to see a movie, or we go to the park and we have meals together. Or we go to coffee together, as some of the ladies do at Corner Cafe, right? They do things that hang out. Even in casual settings. In the New Testament, you see Christians eating meals and doing things together regularly. This is an important part of Christian friendships that we see, spending time actually together. In fact, all the other quick tips that I'm going to give depend on this very point. You can't be doing any of these Christian friendships without even showing up and actually spending time with other people. And not only in these informal settings, we also spend time more than hanging out in in informal settings in our church when we gather for our Bible studies and worship service and evening prayer services and monthly members meetings or other ministries like Pioneer Club or Youth Group or VBS or Table Talks and then all the ones that I've missed, they add to that in in informal settings and, and at our church building even. Tip number two, Christians encourage each other with the Bible and the gospel. We do this as we study and apply the scriptures in our daily lives so that we can have something to actually say of biblical significance to our friends. That's just what Christians do. Now you might be thinking, yeah, I've got this great, wonderful fellowship with this Christian. We're just such tight Christian friends. But then what if somebody asked you, have you ever read or even discussed the scripture and its implications with each other? And you might be like, well, no, of course we don't do that. Why would we do something like that? Are you crazy? Like, we're just Christian friends, but why are you asking me about the Bible? Let me tell you this. If that's the case, that's not Christian friendship. Since our relationships are rooted in scriptural truth, that's one reason why we have our table talks twice a year at different semesters to get us talking about, in the fall and the spring, significant, deep, intentional, spiritual things together, now, it doesn't mean we can't talk about sports and small talk and other things going on, our job. and fam- We can talk about everything, right? That's okay. That's part of Christian friendships, too. But if it just ends at that, then guess what that is? That's just like the show Friends that's on TV. But your friends just talk about everything else except for the glory of God and the gospel and his word. That's not Christian friendships. Take that to heart. Realize what a true Christian friend is. You're a Christian, they're a Christian. You have that unity and you edify one another in Christianity, talking the Bible, sharing the gospel. Tip number three Christians pray for one another through the good times and bad. For we need this. We need this, don't we, church? We need this in our lives for our growth and our sanctification. We need to be caring for and praying for others to grow. We need to be praying for our marriages praying for our parenting, caring for children, or if you're single or widowed, praying for the ministries and life situations and challenges and aspirations and things that are going on, whatever it is in your life, praying for that. Church, I encourage you, come to our prayer services. It's an intentional time when we can pray together, pour out our hearts about our families and our, our marriages and things going on in evangelistic conversations. We pray together, church. I want us to get excited about these realities. We, we intentionally do that because it's so important because you know what? That's what Christians do. Tip number three, Christians care for the practical needs of each other. Someone has a baby, people are helping them with meals or throwing a shower. Thanks for that, by the way. That was a blessing that was encouraging to our family. Someone's in the hospital or coming home. People are praying and caring and checking up on their friends or signing up for a meal train if it's requested or if someone's uh, having a financial difficulty. We think about how we can care for them because we love our Christian friends. We want to be there. We don't just leave them out to dry. We want to help them. Or if you need a repair or help with things and broken down, these are things that I've needed help with before and I've had good Christian friends. Back in California, I remember Pastor Scott coming on the side of the road, helping us out of a sticky situation that I didn't know how to get it. All of our cars parked in the car and cars zooming by on this tight corner and I didn't know what to do. I called my Christian friend and the brother helped us out of a sticky situation. It's what Christians do. We care for practical needs. We're there for each other. We love one another. We meet those different needs. I mean, Christians care for orphans uh, right through adoption and foster care. Some will do that. Others will care for the yard work of widows and widowers who might be struggling and needing help. It's just what Christians do. There's so much more that we can add on this category, but that's what Christians do. Tip number five. Christians mourn and rejoice with each other. Because we're family. There's a kind of solidarity with family, right? When someone's going through suffering or something difficult in life, we don't just go on with our day laughing about what's going on, having a good old grand time, ignoring their pain and suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ. No. We mourn with them. We suffer or care for them. Then on the flip side, if someone gets a promotion at work or gets a new job or things are flourishing on the farm or if someone has a really good week and everything's going really well in the home, raising kids, we rejoice with them. Praise God. Glory to God. Or if it's a really hard week and everything's falling apart, things seem to be going terrible in the home with the kids that week. We we were struggling. Someone might be struggling. Another Christian friend could mourn with them, pray with them, care for them, encourage them. That's just what Christians do. Tip number six. Christians admonish one another out of a humble care and concern, both for doctrinal or theological reasons as well as for moral reasons. Reasons We care for each other and we admonish one another and we warn each other. When things seem to be a little off, sometimes you can tell by... Their Facebook posts or the books that they're reading or the way that they're acting or maybe by their non-attendance at church, uh, that there's just something going on. You pray for them. You ask them how they're doing. You don't gossip about them. You go to them. You encourage them. You tell them that you're there for them. You pray, you care, you warn, you point them in the right direction because sometimes when people are going through terrible things, they don't even know where to go. They don't even see it themselves. Sometimes they need a, a faithful friend, a Christian brother or sister like we saw in our sermon last week, to speak the truth to them in love, and let me encourage you if you're a Christian, you should want that at our church, that's what a benefit of even being a member of a church that you have the accountability and oversight of shepherd or pastors according to Hebrews 13, and then you have the mutual care and accountability and love from other members who are all in covenant to one another, so we should want that kind of thing here at this church, you should want it we should want it, why, why Hebrews 13 mark this down, I mean sorry Hebrews 3, mark this down verses 12 through 13, or turn in your Bible, it says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other, church, because we can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Why? Because sin is deceitful, right? We know this. We need each other to encourage each other to continue on in the Christian life. Tip number seven. Christians repent to one another when they sin. They repent to one another. And guess what, church? Christians actually also forgive one another when they're sinned against, even though that's so foreign in our culture today our world is all about justice personal justice not the justice of god but their own justice and many in our day are unforgiving people never ever seeing their own sin and repenting only seeing the 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 log in in other people or the speck in other people's law, uh, lives and missing the log in their own they're they're not humble but they're always unforgiving they're proud and they don't recognize sin and ever repent but you see christians Repent of their sins and forgive each other. As Matthew 18 says, when someone sins, we go tell her, uh, their faults to them and we deal with it directly, not gossip about it. And Ephesians 4.32 says this. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's what Christians do. If Christians have been forgiven much, they are willing to forgive others and even to repent as well for sins that they do against them. And there's forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what Christians do. Tip number eight. Christians edify each other with their spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 14 deals with spiritual gifts of, of tongues and prophecy and, and the, just the topic and theme of spiritual gifts in general. And good Christians differ about how, you know, these particular gifts may or may not work or may or may not continue or cease. These things like, things like that, but wherever you may be at about those types of spiritual gifts or spiritual gifts in general, we all ought to agree that believers are given spiritual gifts for the primary reason of edifying one another in the church, for the building up of the church. It's why our kind of mission statement is glorifying God by building up and reaching out. It's what Christians do. We edify each other with our spiritual gifts. And tip number nine, and finally, Christians pursue the great commission together. We talk about our neighbors and co-workers and unsaved family members and friends that we're having conversations with, not in a gossipy way, but in a way with hearts that care for the salvation of unsaved people in our lives that we care about and know. And we pray for each other, and we pray for the lives of our friends uh, that they might be saved we pray about those work situations that we might discuss with an unsaved coworker, and we pray for each other in that we pray for family members or neighbors or 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 whoever or even a spouse we pray or kids we pray for them all and we come alongside as teammates in the mission field of life and we go to events and we go over to a, 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 the home or something where unbelievers and believers might be there and it's on our radar to be in the Great Commission together encouraging one another, bringing the gospel, telling the gospel, encouraging people with the gospel because we're in this whole Great Commission thing together. And how many of you have children or no children in other homes in this church? Do you realize that there is a prime Mission field in each and every one of our homes. Parents, there's a mission field. Others need to be encouraging people with children, praying for them, praying for their kids, being an influence as we've seen in children's discipleship ser- uh, sermons in the past. We, there's mission everywhere. Pray for it. Be about it. Encourage one another in these things. Why? Because that's what Christians do. So now that we've looked at what a Christian is and isn't, and what even Christian friendships are, we even just looked at why they matter, right, with these quick nine tips that Christians do together in these significant Christian friendships. Let me just say now, church, in closing, that we live in a day and age when people can stay home and even now watch on their devices, church services, especially even after the pandemic, right? Not to mention we can easily throw on the best preachers wherever we're at, or our favorite Christian resources and songs and things of that nature, and we can get all that stuff without ever leaving our house and going to a local church to be with people at all. We just can. We all know this. But sad is the man or woman who stays home for reasons outside of certain circumstances, right? Sad is the man or woman who stays home because he or she will never have a Christian friendship. And she will miss out on cultivating that significant Christian relationship or friendship in her life. He will never have a brother or sister in Christ or spiritual mother or father to know and to be known. He or she will never have the, the, be able to love others or be loved by others or use their gifts to bless others or to experience the actual gifts from others. If they just stay by themselves at home, none of that's going to happen if that's the case. This person in this situation or these people will be in a sad, very, very, very sad state. They will be a hermit a recluse, a friendless, alone person when it comes to their Christianity. And that is not how God intended it for any of us ever in the history of the world. Not now after the pandemic, not before the pandemic, not in the early church, uh, not, not ever. It was never how it was intended. Never, never could digital things replace what relationships face-to-face actually entail. And not only will it be a sad situation, that person is in great danger. I hope you can see and feel that. Because at home, there is no one there to affirm their profession of faith, as a local church could do in terms of faithful memory, or encourage them in the Christian life. There's no one there. They're on their own. And the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of heart, as we looked at in Hebrews 3, will get out of control. The loneliness and despair will take over on their own with nobody else. And there's no one there to watch out for them and help. Why? Because they're isolating themselves and living all on their own. So I I challenge every one of us here in this church and anyone who's in our church, don't be like this person, I warn you, who seeks the ministry and relationships, They they seek to avoid those things. They, they seek to avoid it maybe out of fear or sin or indifference or apathy or just habit. Rather, I encourage us all to come to church and seek Christian friends, or more importantly, seek to be a Christian friend to someone else because you've had a friend in Jesus. He's loved you. He's modeled to you what a sacrificial friendship looks like in the gospel. We then encourage each other with the gospel. But we can't do that unless we gather and we're here and we know and we cultivate significant Christian friendships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its powerful work in our lives. We're thankful for what the scriptures reveal about this very important topic of Christian friendship, help us all to really believe these things, not just to say that we believe these things, but lean in and actually show it by our life and practice and our pursuit of these Christian friendships. We say this in Christ's name, amen.